next speakers. Uh, the conversation we're going to be having is about private equity, the sustainability of private equity asset classes for institutional investors, uh, and just a broad conversation about the private equity space. Um, I'm actually quite keen about this conversation because we have ESCOM on this panel. Uh, can we please call up our panelists? It's Patu from uh, the ESCOM Pension and Provident Fund, Langer from the South African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association, and Shainal Suka from Suka and Associates. If you could please all come up. Thank you. Okay, great, let's get started. Um, Patu, let's start with you, of course. <laughs> um, you know, ESCOM's a big conversation in our, in our country at the moment, uh, but let's speak about ESCOM's Pension and Provident Fund, okay. <laughs> which what you want to speak about, but of course we'll try and throw in another question or two about ESCOM. Um, <laughs> you can choose to answer, you can choose not to, it's okay. Uh, okay. Um, but just speak to us about ESCOM's Pension and Provident Fund, um, how long it's been around, and why the decision to go into the asset class um, space. Okay. Uh, thanks for the invite. I'm very happy to be here. I represent the ESCOM Pension and Provident Fund. Okay. So, <laughs> just thought I should make that clear. Um, the pension fund has been around for a long time, I think 60 or 70 years. Uh, the private equity or the private market side of things, that's been around 20, maybe 25 years. And that is divided into four main subcategories. Uh, each one of them had, there was a specific reason for each, each one of them, for creating each one of them. So about 20 years ago, we created, and this is before my time, obviously, the, the private equity uh, portfolio. The, the reasoning behind that was just uh, the, the, usual, um, the usual reasons, nothing special. We're looking for, for diversity. Diversifying returns, uh, we're looking for higher returns that we can get in the listed markets. But we've also launched uh, about 10 years ago, so that was mostly South Africa. We've also launched um, a sub-portfolio which, which invests in the, in the rest of Africa. We have the developmental impact portfolio that until recently only invested in South Africa. That was launched also about 15 to 20 years ago. The reasoning behind that was, was just um, social responsibility, if you like. So, so we invest in healthcare, in education, in renewable energy. So this is, this is mostly about what can we do as a pension fund to assist in the development of South Africa as a country. We have also the Real Assets Portfolio. This one is quite new. It was created maybe two years ago. It's, it's, it's fairly new, but the reasoning behind that is, is, is simply we're a pension fund. We have a certain type of liability profile and we need uh, cash flows that, that match those liabilities. The last one, which is the most recent, is the incubation. That is partly transformation, I think, but it's, it's, it's a lot more than just transformation. It is, it's, it's about identifying uh, talented black professionals in the asset uh, asset class and, and giving them a chance to to run their own businesses and I, I'm happy to to say that I, I can see one of those guys who are in a, uh, who are going to be in our incubation program uh, looking at me right now from uh, Tamela so it's, it's it's bearing fruit already okay great so Langa, let's bring you into the conversation perhaps speak to us about how uh, the association 
plays a significant role in the private equity space in South Africa? Okay, um, thank you very much. I think um, the South African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association, um, for the longest time, I think the main driver was around dealing mostly with regulators in terms of how private equity is uh, regulated in the country, um, particularly dealing with the FSCA, the SAB, and the treatment uh, of uh, movement of uh, cash across territories, also dealing with SARS around tax treatment. And more recently, I think the role of SAFCA has uh, started to evolve and we are more outward centric in terms of that. We realize that we play, we have the potential based on where we are now in terms of quantums of investment to become a significant player in terms of enabling uh, much needed uh, social transformation, uh, creation of jobs, uh, as well as stimulating economic growth. Um, I think, um, as was mentioned earlier, the JSC derives 60% of its return from outside and a significant number of the 183 uh, registered private equity funds that are members of SAFCA are investing locally here in South Africa and they are creating jobs and finding opportunities to stimulate the economy. And we've got strategies that range from education and healthcare uh, to strategies that focus on investment in renewable energy, uh, to mining, to food security. And it's um, been our significant uh, objective from now going forward to highlight what can happen through private equity and the correct type of investments into the asset class. Okay, Shannon, let's bring, bring you into this because, you know, it's important to speak about the private equity space in South Africa, um, where it is at the moment, uh, and, you know, it's often said to carry a liquidity premium above listed equities, but in, in your views and research and being in the space, uh, how is the private equity space actually doing? Yeah, so just from our experience, um, look, we, we'll also try and balance this argument as well because I think, you, you know, at these conferences like this, you often get speakers, you know, like what we've done, talking about just the positives around it. Sure. But we'll try and balance it out this time around. Um, but, the, you know, for, it depends on the fund. You know, I do think um, their unique risk tolerance, uh, their member profile, their liabilities, etc. And I think, but, but I, do, I, do, I do want to say that private equity does play a role. And I think especially in the, in the current environment we're faced with. I showed some of those risks. Um, and I feel it does help to diversify uh, your listed equity exposure. I mean, I like the comment earlier on the previous panel about just because something is called listed, you just assume that it's liquid. Um, I mean, I, I think the, other, the same is true regarding risk. I mean, we've seen in the past 18 months um, how many corporate governance lapses at large listed companies, uh, Abel, Steinhoff, Tongat, uh, Sassel, EOH. Do I have to, do I have to go on? Yes. Uh, and, and, and so my point is around at investment committee meetings, right, we've spent so much time on those companies um, relative to, say, the amount we spent on alternative assets. This is at CRF. So, so guys who say, you know, these investments take up a large governance budget, that you'll spend a lot of time on private equity because it's complex and because of... Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I agree. It, it does take time. 
Um, it does take effort, but I mean, relative to listed equity, that also consumes a lot of time as well. And bear in mind that most retirement funds are equity biased, listed equity biased. So they have you know, up to 40 to 50% in that asset class. Compared to what we're talking about in private equity, even if you're allocating 5%, um, you know, we have to put things into perspective. So, so I'm just... Putting it yeah, into perspective. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, before we carry on, perhaps we should uh, pose a question to the audience through our poll. Just remember that there's the link and the pin. Uh, also, just, just a reminder that when the question uh, is presented to you on the slide, right at the bottom, the link is there as well as the pin. The question is, do you feel as though private equity provides significant diversification benefits to a portfolio? Yes, no, maybe, not sure. Patsu, do you want to maybe answer that and speak to that? So okay. 61.5% are saying yes. I, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think that um, our experience suggests that it, it, it does give you diversification. It also gives you a respite from perceived volatility. And I say perceived volatility because some people tell you that private equity is just as volatile as listed, uh, the difference being that, you know, it doesn't get uh, traded on every day, you know, it doesn't get reported on every day. So, but in our experience, it has, I think the, the, the difference here or the issue is that if you think about regulation 28, you can only allocate a certain amount to the unlisted class. So it does limit the amount of diversification you can get in, in your portfolio. But in summary, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with this. Okay. Langa, maybe I can bring you in about 28.2% uh, of this room says maybe. Why do you think uh, you would vote that? Okay, so um, I am private equity, and as, already, as you can see, I'm wearing stickers providing diversity just here on the panel. <laughs> um, um, but I think private equity does give um, a great amount of diversification, even if we look at it from the perspective of if we took a random sample of the JSE and then and as random as it could be, NESPAS would always be in that random sample. And if you look at what NESPAS does, NESPAS by way in which it constructs itself is basically a listed private equity fund because all the underlyings are unlisted businesses where the governance has to come from what NESPAS enforces. In the private equity space, I am able to request that in my investment in a company, I should have, uh, let's say, uh, management accounts weekly and so forth and so on. But over and above that, the JSC currently has gone down from what, 600 to 300 businesses. Let's say you invested your money and you put your money into a fund of funds that was going to then subsequently invest into, let's say, 10 private equity guys. And those 10 private equity guys each built their portfolio and they had 10. If that fund of funds had, um, let's say, a billion rands and it gave 100 million to each of them, all of a sudden your billion has given you exposure to 100 companies. Whereas if you went to the JSC, what proportion on of the unit trust would what unit trust would be able to give you exposure to a hundred companies from a billion rands so that for me is one of the first things and then the second thing in terms of diversification of your portfolio is that um in many instances you get it's all these styles right uh that traditional asset management have whether it's uh, growth or its value or deep value like some guys uh, have said 
Um, and then in private equity, you then come to us and we say, look, guys, we also have the different styles that we can apply in terms of how we're going to uh, look into this. You get managers who are growth capital orientated, guys who are buyout orientated, guys who are efficiency orientated. You get guys who are doing private debt. You get guys who are uh, about balance sheet engineering. And there's a different style that also gives you that additional diversification. And then we also diversify according to sector. We also diversify according to geography. I'm almost tempted to speak to liquidity, but I'll hold myself. Eh? <laughs> Uh, Chandel, maybe speak to why 2.6% of the room said no. I have no I'm idea. Maybe sure. they weren't sure. I think that's... Oh, it's, is it not sure? Um, not sure and no. Yes, yeah, so okay. look, I, I think, you know, in some cases it, it may not be for everyone, as I said, for all pension funds to have a portion in private equity. It is, it is generally different. It does require more due diligence. Um, generally, private equity funds invest in a few companies, and you know, there's criticism that it's often a binary type of outcome. After 10 years, you'll get, let's say, two that fail, but then the rest do exceptionally well. So over the 10-year period, you would have done reasonably well and met the target. And some funds can maybe can't stub stomach that kind of outcome. Um, but I, I do think we should put things into context. I mean, people forget, again, that the JC have all these large companies on there. Um, but all companies started being small at some stage. Um, so, you know, we, it, we, we need to, uh, you know, encourage more job creation um, in our country by supporting smaller businesses. And I think the private equity industry does it quite well by supporting that sector and scaling them up so that eventually they could become uh, the next NASPERS of the world, etc. Um, but to answer your other question, the earlier question, which I sort of, I think I dodged, but um, I think the private equity industry in our country, is, it's, it's very sophisticated. It's well, you know, um, it, the industry has high, quite high standards uh, relative to other markets. Um, it's just, I think the constraint is just they tap in, tapping into the pension funds and the retirement funds. Uh, and, and I think not many funds are ready to allocate. So I think it has been difficult fundraising. Um, I know a lot of private equity managers who come to us because they see how much alternatives we have and we have to say like, guys, we're like an anomaly at 16. You know, we, if, if all the other funds get to 15, then we'll go to 20 and then let's hope. That was the reason why we're speaking at this conference. Just, that's just a joke. Um, but, but yeah, we, we think, um, they're relying on capital. There's a lot of lot more players um, in the sector, so we're seeing a lot of managers. It's just the, I think the capital's not flowing. Okay, Patrick, perhaps let's speak about my favorite topic, ESCOM. Um, how much of it is invested into into private equity at the moment? Uh, I know you can't get into like the finer details, but right. if you can just speak to, to that and uh, you know, has it gone well so far? Like, what have been the pros and cons of investing cert a certain parts of the fund into private equity? Okay. We are talking about the pension fund. Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it's it's uh, so, so. I suppose to start, may, maybe I'll differentiate between what 
internally we've allocated to to private markets i'll call it that because of different portfolios and what has actually been deployed right um so in terms of allocation there's as we touched on earlier rec 28 limits it to about 15 percent we see a lot of value in in that asset class we we, we we're close to to that limit uh what we need to just keep in mind is that one of our portfolios the real assets portfolio has has a lot of exposure to to property for example and rec 28 allows you an extra 15 percent i think it is to immovable property so we probably as it stands we'll probably get 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 to uh, allocate a bit more as as uh, as time goes on but but we're close to 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 that edge we've we've allocated as much as we can okay uh, i wanted to ask another question but i don't know Go if ahead. you're going to ask answer that's me. fine <laughs> i am a journalist i need to yeah. ask this there's been panic in the market after comments were made uh to use pension funds of government employees to bail out SOEs. Okay. And we all know ESCOM is one of them. Um, your thoughts, your comments on that? Okay, so I've been expecting that. But are you talking about prescription? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let me start by saying that as, as, employee, as employees of the pension fund, our job is to do what's best for the members, okay? retirees and active members so every decision we make is in the best interest of those members number two prescription we have made our position clear on that um, in, in case you doubt me we have a statement on the website we don't think it's a good idea um, but I, I should also just add that I, as it stands it doesn't look to me as though it's happening I think that was election time um, uh, I don't know um, I think they had to say whoever whoever's been saying will will prescribe uh, probably had to say something to to get voters you know voters attention but as it stands we we don't think it's a good idea at all we why think, don't you think it's a good idea well be, because i don't think the government should be making uh, investment decisions on behalf of professionals right uh, and for, for the same reason I, I i don't make decisions on behalf of parliament because i'm i'm uh, you know that's <laughs> no i'm not qualified <laughs> to do that I, I think we're probably best placed to, as investment professionals, to make those decisions to decide where we should be investing and 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 what's best, as I said, for our members. So I think we should just yeah keep it as it is. Great, thanks for answering. Okay. Uh, Langer, perhaps speak to us about how how much private equity improves portfolio diversification, if it even does, um, locally and globally, and you know what significance does this? bring to an investment stage by including uh, private equity into your portfolio? Okay, uh, thank you for that question. I crammed the answer, so <laughs> I'm ready. So there's an article that came out of uh, Top 1000 Funds. Uh, it's a website that focuses on the activities of the Top 1000 Funds in the world, but you have to be a subscriber member. Uh, and the particular article speaks to CalPERS, which is the world's largest pension fund. And the new CIO came out and made a statement and said they've been doing actual models. Thank God they didn't post them on the website. We would have been confused. But anyway, what happened was they removed private equity from the portfolios uh, completely and found that they would have been achieving a 5.7% return over the last 25 years. They added private equity at where their current allocation sits, which is at about uh, 8%. And that 
brought up the returns to about 7%. They intend to ramp up the number from 8 to 16% over the next uh, 5 to 10 years, and then now they're projecting forward what that will do in a low return environment. And they're anticipating that a lot of lag will come from the other asset classes, and private equity will continue to be stable. Um, it's not me, it's them. And they anticipate that despite the drop in returns from other instruments, the return will increase to about 73 to 7.7% on the back of a 16% allocation to private equity. Then we look at that from a South African perspective and the pension funds are roughly about almost 1% of the money that is in private equity. Um, well, I mean, almost 1% of pension funds is in private equity. And then you say, from diversification perspective, if you took the asset class and it has that much of an impact on returns, do we actually have to have that deeper conversation in terms of like, okay, how many businesses are actually in the underlying if the performance merits an increased allocation. Funds like uh, CRF, funds like ESCOM, I think would also attest to, oh sorry, EPPF, would also attest to the extent to which private equity is an enhancer of, of performance and the diversity that it affords you. I mean, there's 183 private equity funds in the country and if all 183 are doing, let's say, 10 businesses, that's 1,830 companies that you potentially have an exposure to. But that math is wrong in of itself because some of the specialist instruments like the MES funds could have a greater number of assets that are in the underlying because they are doing unlisted debt. Um, unfortunately, many times are also classed alongside real assets as being one category in Reg 28, but we're actually not. And that in of itself, the strategies that I'm seeing in the market, we've got education, we've got healthcare, we've got industrial, we've got unlisted commercial, we've got social housing. And that in of itself, the pool of opportunities that exists for you to invest, I think is tremendous in terms of what it can do for diversification. Okay, Shainal, perhaps we should um, bring you into, into this, this part where you know, the big question is how are private equity, how, how will private equity fare given, you know, that there's fears of upcoming recession, whether it be in South Africa or in the US or globally, um, how would private equity fare in such a climate? Yeah, just, just because we've got a few things right uh, back in 2015 doesn't mean I know what's going to happen going forward. But I'm just, but, but to answer your question, I, look, just my opinion, um, I do think, you know, in locally, conditions have been tough. I think the private equity funds, that's the other benefit if you diversify by vintage. Um, you know, you, uh, you know if, you, if you go in at different points in the economic cycle, that will help. Um, we actually, I said to my client, I think it was two weeks ago at an investment committee, we've just come across a lot of opportunities where fund managers and you know, just different entities are coming to us as, as a consultant to look at their opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I said to my client that I actually think that seems to be a sign that our economy is probably, you know, on the way up. There's perhaps some green shoots. This, just, just from that, from, by looking at the opportunities and what people are actually doing. Um, I do think that there has been a lot of changes that have been, have been taking place, which... Um, maybe we don't really hear about um, in the media, not, not 
I'm not blaming the journalists. No, no but I, taken. It's okay. I, I, I mean, to turn the ship, it's going to take some time. Uh, we have to be realistic. But there are changes already being made, and I think if the structural reform continues, I'm more confident that investing now in private equity, where you know there's fear and you know everyone's just like you know uh, uh, taking capital offshore, sure. at, when the rand is at 15, 30. It's now much stronger, as you've seen. It's now 14.77. But um, it just that's when we get excited because there's, the opportunities are there. If you're a long-term investor, you should take advantage of conditions like this, when pe people are just selling because of sentiment rather than actually the actual underlying case, uh, investment case. Patu, are you concerned or are there any issues around the valuation of some of your private equity funds investments over time? So in, in general, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not. Uh, but what tends to happen is that um, everyone walks in and they think they're going to give you 25% uh, return. Right? They, they all say that. And <laughs> generally, they don't. Um, but, but you see, it's, it's usually based on this is what I have right now. I think I bought this asset at four times. I'll sell it at eight times. Right? Uh, Ten years later, you know what, we, we want our money back. Uh, when do you sell? No, I can't sell right now. The, the market is not right. Uh, now I need an extension, so you need an extra two years. So either you get an, an extension or you sell at, at a valuation that you're not liking, which obviously you know, affects your returns because you know, um, obviously IRI is time sensitive. So it's usually around things like that. It's, it's not necessarily a case of a guy says, I have, I have a portfolio worth 100 rand. And it turns out it's worth 30 rand. That, that's, that's infrequent. That doesn't happen all the time. So I, I would say in general, not. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps we can put, uh, do you want to say yeah, something sorry, on that? Sure. Sorry. Um, I think valuation risk is something that gets spoken about in, within private equity um, a lot. But to again put it into context, um, I mean, our market, the listed equity market, is well most fund managers active fund managers you know enlisted equity will say our market is inefficient and that's why we can take advantage of it and generate alpha so in my in my mind if our market is in, indeed inefficient isn't that valuation risk um, because the market actually doesn't price um, the companies appropriately um, so I, I guess again both asset classes have the same risks um, both are subject to valuation risk. We've seen more recently in the past 18 months how valuation risk, uh, which is, if you just look at the daily movements on some of these stocks, which are large companies, you can't tell me that there isn't valuation risk in Sasol or um, relative to, say, a small or medium-sized company. So maybe just a different perspective on things. Sure, great. Uh, let's actually bring up another poll question, and this specifically speaking to the governance structure in private equity. Uh, you know, we always talk about governance and how important it is, but what does one think of the governance structure in private equity? Good, can be improved, poor. Langa, do you want to speak to that? Oh, uh, okay. My personal perspective is that the governance structure in private equity is great. Eh? It's probably the best that you'll ever get in the world. And the reason is, done correctly and done correctly with the clients, there are several layers of uh, governance that you have to go through. We're all licensed financial services 
what is it providers yes so we've got the F the fsca as a regulator that then looks into our activities one two we have to report quarterly back to the client uh, in terms of what it is what we're doing and how we are performing uh, and that gives another layer of comfort. And then it's even worse when the client has an asset consultant because we must first report to the asset consultant, then to the client on what we're doing. But internally, from a structural perspective, we are all registered companies. So we've got management committees, then we've got boards. And then over and above that, we've got investment committees that are independent and of which a lot of times the client and the asset consultant have got the right to quiz us on the construction and constitution of those investment committees and where there may be a perceived non-independence, we can work out those uh, kinks in order to make it purely independent. Then above that, we've got an advisory board that is made up of members of the body of investors who then check what the investment committee and ourselves are saying about our adherence to the strategy that we're, what we're following. Then that whole big machinery goes and sits in the company. And our ability to fundraise is built on reputation and performance and the ability to deliver on the outcomes that we have set. So when we sit with the board first, of the businesses to formulate strategy. We're formulating strategy to make sure we're doing that 25% that uh, apparently is theoretical. And then at that level, active managers are then able to say, not only are we going to sit at board, we're also going to sit with management. We're going to sit with management. Do we need it weekly? Do we need it fortnightly? In order to participate in all these things. If you're doing it correctly, uh, giving an example of how we do it, we actually track daily cash movements in the business. We check delegation of authority, who's allowed to sign off payments and so forth and so on. Who's allowed to fire and hire? Why are people being fired and hired? Is the institution unionized? And if it's a union, how does the union feel about those people? What are the legal contracts that they're entering into with suppliers? Uh, just on governance, we, you know, when it comes to ESG, um, we encounter a lot of ac uh, active managers who say that they integrate ESG in their process. But a lot of them initially started by saying, you know, the S and the E are subjective, so we can't actually take a view on E and S issues, but on governance, we're really strong. Like that's, you know, we've got big teams of analysts who focus on governance, we meet with management, and yet we've still seen lapses, as I mentioned, with Abel, with Steinoff, from big managers. So we do have this, we do have a concern that, you know, with the listed equity guy, the guys who, who trade in listed equity, that yes, they do focus on the governance, but it's not to the same level as a private equity manager. I mean, they go and sit with management meet, as Langa demonstrated, so I'm not going to repeat that. But we do think that the private equity guys actually do what active managers should be doing, which is actively manage the risk of those companies. Um, as opposed to just buying and selling shares on the listed markets. So we think the future of asset management would be more in these type of investments rather than simply just trying to outperform the stock, uh, on the stock market. Sure. Um, Patu, if you could maybe speak to us about uh, the kinds of returns that uh, the fund has witnessed over the past, let's say, five years. Um, there's been a lot of volatility in the market, but you know, what kind of returns has the fund witnessed over the last five years? Generally, I think we, sh we shouldn't be judging private equity on, uh, on, on short-term periods, like three, 
five years. Um, but, but surprisingly, if you look at, so, so I'll break it up into, we have South Africa and we have the rest of Africa. So outside of South Africa. And it's, it's I suppose it's expected, as some people may have expected, it's doing better, it's looking better than, than, than the listed markets. But as I touched on earlier, this is, this is all based on what the manager thinks he can get out there when he exits. And that's, that's still to be confirmed, right? We'll find out when they do finally sell. Uh, but on the, on the rest of Africa side, um, I should be careful how I say this, given the, the environment we're in. It's, it's, uh, it's not looking good. It's, it's, it's quite bad, actually, if, I, if, I, if I'm being absolutely honest. I think that's, that's not just over the last five years. We've been in that maybe 10 years or so. Uh, so so it's, been, it's been a while. Uh, we, we have a lot of challenges on the, on the continent. Uh, our managers have a lot of challenges. Um, we made a lot of commitments that, to this point, remain undrawn. And the issue we understand is that you have a commitment, but you cannot find deals. So you cannot deploy that capital. It's, it's, it's tough finding the right type of businesses to invest in, um, at least where they've been looking. Uh, so if you can't find them, um, what, you, what you end up doing, what some people have done is, that this one story that an asset manager told me, you're looking at small family-owned SME-type businesses. So this is, this is a guy who's maybe looking for growth capital. He's happy to sell you a minority stake, right? But he wants to buy it back from you when it's right for him. So he's selling you maybe 5 or 10%. You cannot really sell it because nobody out there wants to be buying a minority stake from you. He'll buy it from you when, when he feels the time is right, which obviously means there's not a lot of competition there. There's just one person who's happy, who's, who's willing to buy that. Obviously, that affects uh, valuations. So I think that's part of the problem. But the second thing would be every time you step out of your country, you need to consider currency. Um, you give a guy 100 rand, he invests it, he gets a 20% return, and that currency depreciates 30% in that particular year. Okay? You, 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 that, that's a big problem, right? When you repatriate that uh, capital back to South Africa, you haven't done much. Actually, you're looking at negative. So, on the SA side, it's looking fine. It's, it's actually looking better than fine. It's looking very good compared to, to, to the listeds, but uh, the rest of Africa is, is a big challenge. What are some of your biggest concerns? Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to just carry on there. Uh, what, are, what are your biggest concerns for the fund at the moment? For the fund as a whole? Yes. Um, not much, actually. <laughs> the fund's looking good. It's, it's healthy. It's, uh, it's, it's fully funded. We've got a sizable surplus. Uh, and actually, at this point, we could just be trying to, to, to defend the surplus as opposed to, to taking uh, unnecessary risks. So, no, we're not worried about anything. And, and I don't think our members should be worried either. I think... Well, at least one part of ESCOM's not worried. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps I can speak to you about, uh, you know, what are some of your comments, or some of the comments that you've heard um, and the perceptions about South Africans' private equity space in comparison to the rest of the world um, and developed countries as well. Yeah, so I've attended a lot of SAFCA, well, not a lot, but SAFCA conferences, and they get a lot of international speakers, um, and that, that's very helpful to give, get an international perspective on things. Um, I mean, the th stuff that I think they've raised, 
think Langa, you can help me here. But um, I think our industry is relatively small compared to um, the other regions. Uh, U.S. pension funds are much more sophisticated in their investment strategies, um, and so have a lot of alternatives exposure, and you know, and they're large funds. So you know, small deal for them is a very big deal for us. Um, and I think that's where there's an opportunity for, again, as we, you know, previous panelists said, and we need to collaborate because I think if we work together to try and get different parties along that value chain together to, to get this capital into our country and find these opportunities, et cetera, I think it's, it's doable. I mean, this ca the capital's waiting and it's there. It's just we need to probably create the opportunities for those uh, for that capital. What are, what are some of the opportunities that we aren't creating to bring in that capital um, to South Africa, Langa? If you can touch on that. Yeah. So I agree what are we doing wrong? What are we doing? What are we not doing to bring it in? So I think there are probably in my view three things that we're doing wrong. One, pension funds are not investing enough. Because the question will always be, if the guy who lives in your house doesn't believe in you, why should we? And it's, it's just that basic. So until we can get to like where, a place where we're saying, you know what, of the permitted 15% of Regulation 28, we're currently having everybody applying for exemptions. Everybody outside the house is going to be asking what's going on in that house that you can't support each other. And I think that's the first part. Then I think the second part is, as Chanel said, until we get that scale, we are too small. So, for example, um, to put it coarsely, CalPERS won't get out of bed unless they're going to write a check of at least $100 million. If they wrote a check for $100 million, all of the private equity practitioners who are in here would be overfunded. Would just be like, once I'm, mm, can you give us 30% because we're overexposed to you as a single client? Um, but then, last but not least, I think the one worst thing that happens here in South Africa is we like to shoot ourselves in the foot by the way we tell our own story. I sometimes sit there in the corridors of power uh, <laughs> in my own house and turn on the news, <laughs> you know, and I'm watching these guys like the ENCA, SAPC, and I'm like, which South Africa is this? And we, we never put mind to the fact that we're not the only ones listening or watching how we tell the story about ourselves. And um, last week I was at a congress of a particular union and then fortuitously are sitting with the Secretary General and the Treasurer General. And these guys are talking about how mining is bleeding and dying. And I'm like, you are a union. You have close to 19 pension funds that are in your auspices. You have all these private equity managers and all these resource-focused uh, investment, um, investment fund managers. How many of them do you actually sit down with them to diagnose and discuss the problem? Because we still have challenges with mining beneficiation in South Africa, but private equity, nothing stops us from setting up specialist beneficiation funds. Instead, we want to be in the media talking about how Tito's plan is bad, instead of saying what he can do to enhance it. And for me, that is actually the real reason why we're not getting inflows into the country ourselves. Yeah, sorry if I can add just quickly. Um, there's an organization called NASP, which is equivalent to APSIP locally. Um, they're basically a group of investment 
professionals and stockbrokers, I think, in the, in the U.S., and they've come regularly. I think there's been three interactions so far this year, and they sit and they, uh, and they brought trustees along you know, from these U.S. pension funds. And again, I, to, to echo my, um, Langa's point, um, they basically say, but why aren't your local funds investing? That's the big question. And then we know of instances where, for example, a, a DFI based in, in, okay, I won't give the country, they were willing to commit 500 million of capital to invest in municipal debt. And we know the state of municipalities in the country. And the whole program around this was to get other local pension funds to invest, but they would also provide resources and go to the municipalities with, you know, just uh, skills training and development, etc. And this fund hasn't taken off because we may have been the only fund that were interested, but we also, I mean, or my client is in local government. Um, ideally, the, we couldn't, the fund hasn't got taken off. And so 500 million from a European country, they were willing to invest in our municipalities. And we, it's just being, it's not being done because their requirement was we want to match, they want to see local retirement funds giving an a matched amount. And, and that's, so that's the problem. There's, as I said, this capital is just that we're not getting our acts together. Mm. Pastor, do you want to add anything before I open up the floor? No, not necessarily, but I just picked up on uh, my friend's point here about pension funds not, not investing enough. But I know he meant everyone except EPPF. Because NCRF, because as I said, we've allocated almost to the limit of how much we can do. So we're not looking for exemptions. And as I said, uh, um, a part of the real assets portfolio has exposure to, uh, to property. So it's likely that we'll go over that because you get an extra 15% for immovable property. So we are doing as much as we can, I think. Um, uh, but but, but I, sh I should hasten to add that uh, that's all in the interest of the members. We're, we're not just doing this because, you know, sure. people say it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. It, it makes sense at this point. There's, there's value in the asset class. Great. Okay. Any questions from the floor? Okay. There's one question there. The panel hasn't really touched on liquidity. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Okay. The panel hasn't touched on liquidity. Uh, and the gentleman on my left, uh, I read in the press that ESCOM could be 50 to 100% overstaffed. Uh, and you've just outlined a fairly severe exposure to relatively illiquid assets, long-term illiquid assets. What would you do if there was a major retrenchment event uh, in terms of your percentages that you don't need a, a exemption from? I'm guessing that's a question for me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a big position in, uh, in, in um, illiquid assets, I don't think. It's, it's kept at 15%, and we're not there yet. We have a large exposure to bonds, for example, and equities and, and, and money market securities. So I won't get into what happens if uh, people get retrenched and all of that because I don't know what's going on. All I, all I know is uh, it's, it's fine. I think the way it's invested, if we had to, to liquidate stuff, we could uh, quite easily. Uh, the, the stuff you referred to is only, it's not even 15%, actually. It's kept at 15 and we're not there yet. Sorry, if I can quickly, there's uh, default regulations which have been introduced, uh, um, and that this has allowed retirement funds to introduce in-fund living annuities. In our minds, this has extended the time horizon from 30 to 40 years on average to 
60 years. So we're not concerned. We're seeing a lot of members taking up the in-fund options. So we, you know, investing for the long term, we think locking up capital for five to 10 years compared to investment time horizon of 60, we don't think is that risky. And we think we should, especially if you're getting paid an illiquidity premium to do so. Yes. And um, my view on liquidity is probably like from the Wild Wild West, but this is how I see the world. Uh, in a particular day, an announcement was made that Steinhoff had been reporting irregularly in terms of all its financials. How many people got their money out before Steinhoff crashed? The thing is, and we are sitting here and we're enlisted, yes. The only thing is uh, Jack and Chill, who are the everyday people, can't buy in and out as they can in the JSE. But the thing is, for relatively significant movements, it's not that easy on the JSE either. And the way the markets work, regardless of whether you're listed or unlisted, if it's a good business, someone is available to buy. And you'll find that if you look across the private equity spectrum, right, Particularly if you look at the VC companies here in South Africa, I think some of it is understated. But guys are selling their businesses to Uber. They are selling their businesses to guys out of Silicon Valley. And the deals are happening so quickly that you'd think the entity is listed. And I think in as much as yes, you can say that it's illiquid, but all bad companies are illiquid and all good companies have someone willing to buy. And for me, that has always been my view on liquidity. So the premium that you're actually getting is one where um, instead of being able to sell to Jack and Jill, you're selling actually to an individual who actually understands what they're buying in most instances. Any last questions? Sure, David. <clears throat> th th thanks for the discussion. I found it really, really useful, really interesting. Um, I should probably start by saying I do believe in private equity. I do believe it can be a good thing. I think the returns can be good. I think it can be a positive thing for development and for the country and a whole lot of areas. I don't know that we touched on expenses as much as maybe we could have. That's one point to side there. But the issue I want to pick really with is diversification. Yes, I was the one who voted no to significant diversification. I think there probably some diversification. But the, the risk, it is so easy to overestimate the extent of diversification because we don't have daily prices. And this has, been, this has been known for a long, long time. And certainly the, the research that I've seen based on larger private equity markets, so it's, it's the US, right, shows that the correlations between you know, large private equity funds and the S&P 500 can be anywhere between 75 and 97%. So the, the evidence in South Africa, I think, is more limited because of the immaturity of the industry and the lack of data. But I think it's, you just need to be a little bit careful promising that diversification, that, that's the big area to win. I get a little bit nervous when I see um, asset consultants and others throwing very low correlation parameters into the models and spitting out, oh, we should allocate 100% to private equity, that, that's brilliant, with that it's just kind of almost a trivial output of your, of your inputs. So I think there are lots of areas to like about private equity. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, I'd be interested to know if there were research maybe I wasn't aware of demonstrating lower correlations of 75 or 80%. Yeah, so maybe just quickly on, on private equity. I mean, some of the investments we spoke about earlier is uh, also, you know, infrastructure, private equity, uh, like private um, infrastructure equity, um, as opposed to just pure, um, comp you know, investing in companies. So, you know, we diverse, and that I would say does diversify the overall portfolio. 
Um, I fully agree with uh, regarding overselling diversification and low correlation. We don't, we don't actually believe that. As I've said, the risks in private equity and listed equity are very similar in many cases. Valuation, um, capital loss, the risk of capital loss. Um, so, but I, I do think if, if, your, if your total equity portfolio is very tilted towards large caps, perhaps because you're with managers who have a lot of assets, and because of those asset sizes, can only invest in that top 40, let's say, then we feel that actually some of the private equity and investing in small and mid-sized companies does actually introduce some diversification. And based on our experience so far, it's been about three and a half years or four years, um, you know, Heather talked about um, SA Taxi. We, we don't actually, yeah, we think it does diversify the portfolio to have those type of investments in the overall portfolio, but you obviously limit the position, taking into account the different risks. Okay, uh, if Thank I you can add, yeah. 30 seconds. Okay, <laughs> 30 seconds. Okay, there's a book that um, was written by Wharton Business School um, as part of the Wharton Pensions Research. And that book speaks to this diversification and the issues around correlation. And I think they say they surveyed close to 700, 780 private equity managers. The higher correlation exists amongst buyout funds and the exorbitantly large 10 billion because the businesses that they're investing in most of the time have plateaued and it's new markets and so forth and so they look just like what NASPAS would look. But in the mid cap space, the diversification in terms of even from a business philosophy's perspective and product perspective starts to increase. And then the more you start to play in the mid to small cap space in terms of your private equity, the greater the extent of the diversification. I give a typical example that I think is also in that book where they were looking at um, businesses that are in egg supplies as a, an example. That if you had the larger commercialized egg manufacturers, you would find that, let me bring it back home, they would be exposed to pick and pay, shop, right, or spa. But if you go further down the chain, these guys are probably exposed also in a lesser scale to ShopRite, blah, 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 blah. But they're also exposed to the guy who comes and buys the eggs in a truck and then goes into the township and then sells them from the back of his truck. Therefore, technically speaking, when you start to look at what their clientele base looks like, there's actually a greater risk for the guys who are in the bigger funds at the top or who are in the bigger egg business because they don't have the client diversification. We all go and then say, look, but these are blue chip, blah, 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 blah. But we've seen what happens to blue chips. And then this guy here has got this sleuth of clients who tend to remain more faithful. And that's where I think a big part of the diversification story comes from. Not that I'm also trying to oversell it, but I am. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. Thank you to our speakers. We really do appreciate it. We have something small for you. Thank you, thanks so much. Thank you.